O King Jesus, we do wonder. How could it be that you would empty your throne? Come down to this planet and be born for the solitary reason of dying. Your birth, your death, let them both be upon our hearts as we continue our worship. And Holy Christ, our hearts must respond to what you teach us today. Grant us your grace and your courage, we pray in your name. Amen. True confession time. I'm not afraid of snakes. I just don't want to be there when they're there. Are you the same way? Even the, even a picture of a snake makes you recoil? Huh? Take a look at this. That is not the snake. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's better. <laughs> well, it's the holidays. Yeah, just a picture of a snake. Have mercy. Look at this one. Oh, boy. Hey, how about this one? Ooh. This one? Oh, I might be able to handle that one. How about the next one? Eee. So be warned. The story you are about to hear is a real, live snake story. If I should be correct, it actually is a thousands of poisonous snake stories. It's the stuff of nightmares. Take your Bible out, open to the fourth book of the Bible, the book of Numbers. Our series, The Chosen, is moving towards its wrap. Not today, next weekend. Final installment. By the way, next Sabbath, the saddest and the gladdest story of all. Don't you dare miss next Sabbath, all right? Numbers, fourth book of the Bible. And by the way, if you didn't bring a Bible, you have got to follow this one for yourself. So grab the Pew Bible in front of you. It's the same translation, New King James Version that I'm in here. It'll be page 109 in your Pew Bible. Story begins in verse 4. Snakes in the Cradle. That's the title of today's teaching. Snakes in the cradle. Numbers 21, verse 4. Then they, that would be the children of Israel, the chosen. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor. Oh, boy. Sad story. Don't you miss next week. Aaron has died atop Mount Hor, the, the high priest of the community. Forty years. Number two in leadership. He's been buried. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. Now, I need to tell you what's happening here. Edom would be the land of the children of Esau. These are the children of Jacob. So th their cousins are in Edom, and God is absolutely clear. You don't put a finger. You don't put a finger on those Edomites. They are my children. God is still that way with the children of the East, by the way. Still loves the children of the East. And so he says the only way... Here's the promised land. Here's Edom. They're coming up from the south. The only way you can get to the promised land, I want you to go east. You go east. You go around Edom. Then you come to the Jordan next week. But every step they take eastward, they realize we are getting farther and farther from the promised land. Hence, 
The rest of verse 4, And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. Verse 5, And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless, this worthless bread. In the words of the former Yankees pitcher Yogi Berra, it is deja vu all over again. I mean, can you believe it? It's as if we're reading the same story we've been reading all this semester. The same people, the same murmuring, the same complaining, the same, the same meltdown. Different incident, different story. It might feel familiar. It's a different story. For 40 years... They have been bearing an entire generation. Behind these kids' backs are the little burial mounds on the hot sand of their parents. But I've noticed something about a negative spirit. Maybe you have too. You meet a person who, when he looks at the cup, he, he always tells you it's half empty. You meet a person who is by nature negative, and I'm telling you what, you can trace it back to the parents. Like father, like son, like daughter... Like mother, like daughter. Sometimes it is like daughter, like mother. These kids, they got it naturally. They got it honestly. They grew up in a home where you sat around the dinner table. And mom and dad just ripped apart the church, ripped apart the leaders, ripped apart their work, complained about the world, everything. Neggy, neggy, neggy. They got it honestly. A negative spirit. Never forget this. A negative spirit is highly contagious. Especially in groups, by the way. Which is why every, every leader knows that you have got to cut this thing off at the pass. Or the entire group, the entire congregation, the entire community will go into meltdown. Ah. So the people spoke, this is verse 5, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no food, no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread, which being interpreted means we are sick and tired of this awful manna. And by the way, I, I would feel the same way, wouldn't you? Forty years with that same diet, wouldn't you get sick? I would. But I want to remind you before you're too quick to sympathize with the people. I want to remind you it was never God's plan for them to have 40 years of manna. God's plan was for that generation to go straight into the promised land. But because of their unbelief, they've been stuck with that bread for 40 years. A hundred years ago, these words were written. Let me read them to you. Forty, for 40 years did unbelief and murmuring and rebellion sh shut out ancient Israel from the land of Canaan. Now listen, we too may have to remain here in this world because of our insubordination. We too may have to remain in this world many more years as did the children of Israel, but for Christ's sake. That is strong language, by the way. But for Christ's sake, his people should not add sin to sin by charging God with the consequence of their own wrong course of action. You can't blame God. You cannot blame Moses for these 40 years. We're here because you chose. 
That's why you have verse 5. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why you brought us up? Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water and our soul loathes this worthless bread. The leader God knows that he's got meltdown on his hands again. Deja vu all over again. Here we go again. They're just days from the promised land. And so verse 6. Uh-oh. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people and many of the people of Israel died. I know this sounds awful, but I got to tell you something, guys. There is a there is a breathtaking portrait of God in what we have just read. You got to get this. Don't ever forget this. God is so committed to our human freedom that he has elevated free choice as the highest of all universal liberties. You think about it. In God's kingdom, there is no greater freedom than the freedom to choose. That point is so critical to understanding this story that I, I wish you'd take out your study guide right now. Would you take out your study guide and write it down? Let's get that point while it is fresh in our minds. If you didn't get a study guide, thank you, ushers. Just hold your hand up. In the balcony, back, front, wherever you are, and we'll make sure the ushers get that study guide to you. And I want to say a word to you who are watching on television right now. You can get the same study guide. We're delighted to have you. Let me put it on the screen for you. That's our website. You go to our website, www.pmchurch.tv. This is a series, The Chosen. And by the way, this is next to the last of The Chosen. It all wraps up. Don't you miss next week. But today's teaching is entitled, Snakes in the Cradle. You'll see right beside snakes in the cradle, the word study guide, the word study guide. Click there. You'll have the same study guide we have right here. All right, let's write it down while it's fresh, fresh in our minds. Jot it down. God is so committed to our human freedom that he has elevated free choice, free choice. You got a free choice, baby. It is your choice. He has elevated free choice as the highest of all universal liberties. Keep writing in God's kingdom. There is no greater freedom than the freedom to choose. Without the freedom to choose, write it down, reciprocal. You know what reciprocal means? It means I give it back. You give it to me, I return it. Without the freedom to choose, reciprocal love could not exist because love must not only give you the right to say yes, all caps, it must also give you the right to say no. If you are a young man on this campus and you've been longing to go out with a girl, you finally get up the courage to take her aside, and you put a gun to her head and you announce, love me or I'll kill you. Trust me, what she gives you will never be love. You can call it rape, but you cannot call it love. Because love, in order for love to be love, it has to give you the right not only to say yes, but it must give you the right to say no. Well, then why don't you tell that to God? I mean, he's the one that's killing all the people because they said no to him. No, not so fast. Watch out. Watch this. Deuteronomy is our theme book. I want to take you to a verse in Deuteronomy chapter 8. We'll put it on the screen because we need to keep our finger right here. Let me show you something interesting about this wilderness terrain, which for 40 years has been their tramping, camping grounds. All right? This is the wilderness. Moses' farewell address, he says, I want to remind you about God. Look what God did for you. He led you through that great and terrible wilderness in which were what? In which were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty land where there was no water. God brought you water out of that flinty rock. Now, please note, ladies and gentlemen, that the fiery serpents, and by the way, they're fiery because of their rapid fire, killer venom, burns as it goes in, ensuing death in minutes. These fiery serpents, the wilderness is their natural 
habitat. They are the logical inhabitants. They already live there. In fact, would you write it down, please? God did not suddenly create a slithering horde of fiery serpents to punish the children of Israel. The snakes were already there. Don't you put this one on God. Well, what kind of a meanie are you to come up with these snakes? He didn't come up with them. The snakes are already there. For 40 years, God's presence And 1 Corinthians 10 reminds us it is the presence of the pre-incarnate Christ. For 40 years, Christ himself has been the divine shield to protect these wandering liberated slaves. Forty years he's been that shield and wall. But it is clear in response to the people's dark and murmuring wishes, jot it down, God honors their free choice. He values that more than anything in the world. Even if you say no to him, he values that more than you... Having to say yes to him, God honors their free choice and removes himself from their midst, thus lifting the divine shield that had protected them all these years. Why? Because God is love. And in order for love to be love, it must not only grant you the right to say yes, it must give you the right to say no. And when Israel says no, once again, this time God quietly takes no for an answer. He says, all right, I got the point. I got the point. I'm out of here. Goodbye. And he walks away. I want you to hit the pause button here for just one quiet moment. Some of you have been going through uh, some difficult time. Tough stuff. I understand. You may be tempted. You may be tempted to just kiss God off. Tell him, I've had it with you. I begged you to do this. I asked you to intervene. You have done nothing for me. Adios. I want you to think very carefully, my friend, before you say no to God. Do you know what he has kept you from all these years? You be careful. Don't you say no on the borders. Don't you say no on the borders of the promised land. You hang in there with that yes. Verse 6, so the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Ah, see, Dwight, look, it says the Lord sent them. I told you, God is the one who came up with these. Hey, hold on, hold on. There's an important Old Testament principle you need to keep in mind. This will help you through the Old Testament. I'll put it on the screen for you. There it is. God is often shown as doing that which he allows. So when the Bible says God hardened Pharaoh's heart, he didn't harden Pharaoh's heart. He gave Pharaoh an opportunity to make a choice. And Pharaoh chose in that moment of of decision to say no to God. But the Old Testament portrays God as often doing that which he allows. It says the Lord sent sent the venomous adders. He did not. He simply, he simply allowed them. He stepped back, said, all right, you don't want me here. Here's what I've been keeping from you for 40 years. You may have them now. Wow. Did I, already, did I already mention to you that I'm not real keen on snakes? Huh? I mean, you try to imagine it with me. Imagine it. I, can't ima- I cannot fathom the horror of a deadly adder somehow slithering up into my bed. I like to sleep with a leg out of the covers. So he finds that. He's looking for warmth. He finds that hole. I can't imagine what it would be like to wake up in the middle of the night with something cold and clammy moving slowly up the side of my torso. I mean, do you get the heebie-jeebies like I do just thinking about this? Huh? I know what my problem is. I'm telling you, this is the truth. I'm a baby boomer, all right? And so I grew up 
I grew up with a whole lot of missionary stories. A lot of you haven't heard missionary stories, but boy, we baby boomers grew up with them. And I'm a missionary's kid anyway, but I didn't grow up in Africa or India. I grew up in the, you know, civilized uh, Japan, as it were. But they told those stories. I remember those stories. Some of you might remember them where, you know, the missionary wakes up in the middle of the night and they're cocked and coiled that hooded mantle cobra just... It's a stuff. It's a stuff of nightmares. And this is it. Patriarchs and prophets, let me put it on the screen for you. In almost every tent, isn't this something? Almost every tent, in it were the dying or the dead. None were secure. Often the silence of the night was broken by piercing cries that told of fresh victims. Yeah. Therefore, verse 7, you've got to hand it to the people. They may be slow, but they are quick. Ah, bless them. And therefore the people came to Moses and they cried out, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, the very leader that hours ago they had cursed off. They are coming to and pleading, you've got to pray for us, please. I tell you what, I've watched a few leaders in my life. It takes a very big leader... To after he or she has been rejected, be willing to still lead the same people. Moses immediately prays for his stricken people. You know what? It occurs to me, you may be a leader. Leader in your dormitory room. Leader in your marriage. Leader in your home. Leader in your office. Leader in your school. Leader in your place of work. Leader in your neighborhood. You may be a leader. Guess what, leader? Friend, the spiritual mission of a leader is to pray for her people. Pray for his people. You got a roommate? You pray. You pray. You pray for your people. Moses prays and God responds with this most unusual threefold instruction. Watch this. Verse 8, then the Lord said to Moses, after Moses pleaded on behalf of the people, verse 8, number 1, I want you to make me a fiery serpent. You make one just like these snakes that have come into this camp. I want it to look just like these snakes. Number 1, you make a fiery serpent. Number 2, you set it on a pole. The Hebrew word is for a military standard. And I want that pole to be so high that it can be seen across the desert sands, okay? Number 1, serpent. Number 2, high on a pole. And number 3, Moses, you give the people this instruction. Everyone who is bitten when he looks at the pole with the serpent, you live. So Moses, verse 9, made a bronze serpent and he put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. The end. Because it was the end. For those who did not or would not look. I'm too bright for this. I am too intelligent. You don't just look at something and get healed. I refuse. For those too bright... For raw faith, it was the end. But for those victims who were tenderly carried or urgently dragged to that thrown open tent flap. I mean, you try to put it, put yourself there. Come on, it's your mother. It's your mother who's been bitten. You got your mother in the corner of the tent. What are you going to do? The word is, if you can get your mother so that she can turn those almost glazed eyes and face that serpent, she'll live. What are you going to do with your mama? What are you going to do with your brother? 
He's been bitten. Your wife is almost comatose. She's going, going. What are you going to do? You haven't been bitten yet. You're going to drag that body. I don't care how heavy, how you're going to tenderly, you're going to get that body to the open flap. And then you're going to take your two hands and you're going to cup them around that face that is precious to you. And you're going to say, come on, Papa. Come on, Papa. Look, look, open your eyes, Daddy. You can see. Look at the snake. Wouldn't you? It would not be an academic exercise. It would not be a little theoretical. One, two, three. With all the passion you have, you would move that person to a life-giving gaze. And oh, by the way, had it been you, had it been you, I know, I like you, be pleading, somebody, get me to the door. Get me to the door. I have to see this now. Was it the bronze serpent that saved Israel that day? Huh, you think? The bronze serpent did it? Scholars believe that God asked Moses to make the serpent bronze or brass to reflect the color of these uninvited guests, the killers. So I went on Google. I said, okay, give me yellow or bronze snakes. So here's what I get. I tell you what, take your pick. I wouldn't want one of them in my sleeping bag. Not a one of those. Do you think, do you think that the replica hanging high on that standard, do you suppose that there was some sort of divine magic in that twisted brass? Do you think the people believe there was, it was magic? Are you kidding? The people know exactly what's going on. There is no piece of bronze in the world that can possibly save me from what I got. I'm going, baby. They know that God is simply called for raw faith. This God who prescribed the bronze serpent. You see it, you look at it. Do you hear me? You look at it and you live. And given the fact that Israel in murmuring complaint had just abandoned their trust in God, it is clear that this divine remedy is case specific. I'm making it exactly for you. Where you fell, you got to come back. I need raw faith right here. I need you to trust me. You just look at this thing. You just look at it and I'll heal you. You don't look, you're gone. The remedy was simple. Write it down. Look and live. Look and live. Raw faith, which was precisely Jesus' point in that clandestine midnight tete-a-tete conversation with Nicodemus who wouldn't be seen dead with him during the daylight. John 3. I want you to turn to John 3. We're not coming back to numbers. John 3. The Gospel of St. John, chapter 3. Take a look at this. Everybody knows John 3.16. Come on, we know it. The two verses before John 3.16. John chapter 3. John 3. Red letters. If you've got a red letter Bible, this is bright red. Hallelujah. Jesus speaking, Midnight. Under the shadow of an outdoor encounter. John uh, 3, verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 
Now, you need to remember, ladies and gentlemen, this is, the, this is the pre-incarnate Christ. This is the same one who was the pre-incarnate Christ. He's the one who came up with the divine remedy in the first place. And he said, Nicodemus, listen to me. Look at me. I am the serpent. Do you understand that? I am the serpent. There must have been an aghast shock on the face of that sanctimonious rabbi. I am the serpent. And when I'm lifted up, you look at me. And you live. You don't look at me. It's curtains. And then he speaks. Say it out loud with me. Come on. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. Everlasting life. You'll get it. If you raw faith. Trust me. Which is why, ladies and gentlemen, the story of the serpent on the pole is much more than a snake story. God is seizing the opportunity for one more sandbox illustration before they march into the promised land. Did you have sandboxes in, in, in your Sabbath school when you were a kid growing up? I don't, think you, I, don't think you, I don't think young adults had sandboxes. I asked the two young adults I'm working with to put this PowerPoint together. No, no, we didn't have sandboxes. Did you have sandboxes? No, you didn't. You just had flannel graphs, right? Put the things, the little story that told the stories on the, the blue flannel graph. But when I grew up, we had sandboxes. They put these little sticks. Let me ask you this. Did you have a sandbox? Did you have a sandbox outside of your house as a kid growing up? Did you have those? They still have those, don't they? Yeah. Every kid knows about a sandbox. You know what's been going on? Forty years of a literal burning sandbox in the wilderness. And God's been sticking. I'm going to give you the plan of salvation. Watch this. Puts the sanctuary down. See, this, this is what happens. There's a, there's a holy place. There's a most holy place. See that gold? That is the gold ark is my throne. He's telling the story of salvation. You see the bread? Show bread. I'm the bread of life. You see the water? I'm the water of life. You see the light, the candelabra? I'm the light of the world. You see the, you see the sacrifice on the altar? I'm the lamb of, I'm the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. God's put in the sand. He has this. And now just before the promised land, a stick with a snake on top. And he says, look at this. You're not just telling snake stories. He's making a point about salvation. Back, jot it down. Numbers 21 and John 3 introduce the healing metaphor into the divine plan of salvation. Healing, healing, healing. Well, we had a lamb. We got a lamb. No, no, no. The lamb's not enough. Watch this. Keep your pen moving. Whereas the lamb depicted the, depicted the forgiveness of our sins, the serpent demonstrated the healing from our sins. It's the mysterious truth, keep writing, that in order to heal humanity, the Savior must become the very poison. He must become the poison that is killing them. It's a healing metaphor. And that's why physicians today... You go to a doctor's office, somewhere in that doctor's office, maybe on her diploma, maybe on his wall, you will see this symbol. Take a look at that symbol. Do you know what that symbol is? That's Moses' serpent on a pole. It's a symbol of healing. Healing, healing, healing. You got some great biologists here, those of you that are science majors or pre-med students or whatever. You're taking biology. And I've talked to David Steen and I've talked to Bill Chobatar. They teach biology. They teach immunology. They teach the whole thing. You know what's happening at Calvary? Watch this. You know what's happening on the cross? Boy, you guys help me if I'm wrong. 
because I've been working on this. What's happening on the cross is an antigen. An antigen has been injected into the victim of the cross. Sin, as it were, was, was mainlined directly in to the heart of Jesus. An antigen, that's the poison. When the antigen gets inside the system, now help me out, scientists. When the antigen gets inside the body, if it has time, if the body has time, it responds to the antigen by creating antibodies. True or false? Antibodies. Calvary is where God mainlined into himself the poison that has killed the entire human race. So that in that divine human body, there might become antibodies. And if you take the antibody, now hold on, if you take the antibody out of one who has been injected or has been bitten with the antigen... If you take the antibody out of that one and you come to me because I also have been bitten by that same serpent and you inject his blood straight into me, my body immediately receives it as an antidote. Isn't that fascinating? You don't look like you get it, but I thought it was pretty fascinating myself. <laughs> you know. It's, the fact is, we don't have a lot of science majors with us today. That's the problem. <laughs> Isn't that something, guys? Isn't that something? What you're getting in your classes is what happened to Calvary. The antigen goes in. The poison goes in. My sins. What are your sins? What are your favorite sins? Huh? You got a little catalog? Keep in your wallet? This is what I love to do. What are your favorite sins? Whatever they are. Shh. Mainline into the heart. The broken heart. Of the eternal God himself. Antibody. So that if we go to that cross. There's life. Where the serpent is strung up. Whoa. Centuries later it is much more clearly articulated than I just did. And so let's do it in your study guide. And we'll put it on the screen. These verses from the Bible. Isaiah 53, speaking of the coming Messiah, you know, this great prophecy. Surely he has borne our griefs. The, the Hebrew word for grief can be translated. He's borne our sicknesses, i.e. the poison was mainlined into him. He has borne our poison and carried our sorrows. And by his stripes, what does it say? We are what? Healed. Ladies and gentlemen, the serpent is about the healing metaphor. Write it down. We are healed. Please go to the next, uh, next uh, verse, please. First Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Antigen in, injected into him so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. There's the healing metaphor again. Final verse. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he, the Father, made him Christ who knew no sin to be sin. He injected it straight into him. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He made him to be, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The story of the serpent on the pole expands the shining truth of salvation. The power of the cross not only pardons us of our sins, it can heal us from our sins. Mercy. Which is exactly what this is all about. A hundred years ago, you got it right there in your, in, in your study guide, you have to fill it in. As the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of God was lifted up on the cross. 
that the sinners from the ends of the earth, 100 nations represented at Andrews University. There's no nation outside the reach of Calvary. Sinners from the ends of the earth might look and live. Multitudes are still suffering. Notice the metaphor, the medicine, the, the medical metaphor, the healing metaphor. Multitudes are still suffering from the deadly sting of that old serpent, the devil. The effects of sin can be removed only by the provision which God has made. Here alone, hope and salvation can be found. As the Israelites saved their lives by looking upon the brazen serpent. So sinners, that would be you, that would be me. So sinners can look to Christ and live. Unlike that inert and lifeless symbol, that just hunk of brass on top of that stick. Christ has power and virtue in himself. Write it down. To heal. To heal. The suffering, repenting, bleeding. See, the medical metaphor is kept alive. Bleeding sinner. How then shall the chosen be healed? I'm telling you what, guys. Just like Israel of old, that's how. We must look to the pole. We must gaze upon the cross. Look to the cross. Go to the cross. Kneel at the cross. Bow before the cross. It is the only antidote in the universe with the power to heal you and me. Of our crippling, paralyzing, and fatal, fatal sins. Fatal sins. See, I'm not dead yet. I'm not dead. No. It's eating you out from the inside out. You'll die. You'll die. Unless you are healed, you will die. So what is it you struggle with? Hmm? What is the sin that you struggle with? I know what I battle in my life. I know. What is it? This has been some series. I mean, we've looked at all kinds of stuff. Sex, alcohol, dress, diet. The sins of the flesh. The sins of the mind. Just a mouse. Sins of the eyes, sins of the ears. So what is it? What is the poison? I know what I've been injected with by my choice. Ladies and gentlemen, whatever sin you struggle with, there is an all-sufficient power at the cross of Christ to heal you and me. Heal us. Not just forgive us, hallelujah, but heal us. We've got to be healed. It's not enough to be forgiven. You've got to be healed. You can't, you can't go on forever and die this side of the promised land. Look to the cross where flows the healing antidote of the divine serpent that can save us. We must look to the cross. Look to the cross. Some of you are saying, you know, Dwight, I appreciate you going through this little exercise of trying to jog my memory. I actually haven't been able to think of very much at all. <laughs> Some guys just got it. Let me tell you something, my friend. I'm deeply concerned about the toxicity of our spiritual pride. It was a calculated risk to even get into this series. You know why? Because the moment you start talking about behavior, the moment you start talking about distinctive teachings and countercultural behavior. And by the way, we got into this series because of you. The survey we did this last spring, you asked these questions. One series could tie it all together. I believe the Holy Spirit led us into the chosen.
But I have been deeply concerned that as we have examined this countercultural life and this, the, the, the distinctive teachings of the chosen, God has called us to embrace. God has called us to embrace it. All this series, we've examined that. I have become deeply concerned that somehow the chosen are in danger of being duped, deceived into believing. That our salvation is somehow predicated upon our counterculturalness and our radical obedience and our distinctive teachings. And one story, the serpent on the pole declares, it is not predicated on that. I want to tell you something. All the righteous living in the world, all the righteous living in the world will never save the righteous or the wicked or the chosen. You can't, you just can't get saved by how you live. The chosen are not saved because they are chosen. They are chosen because they are saved. And there's a world of difference. Which is why we must look to his cross. It is the only, it is the only antidote that can save us. And by the way, my friend... There's no way you can back this out for you. Because if you're not saved, you're not chosen. Do you understand? Do you understand that chose, people who thought they were chosen died in that wilderness? I got it. I got it. I'm a part of that. I got my card. I'm a part. Look. Nope. They never made it to the promised land. Thought they were chosen. Turns out they weren't healed. They were not saved. Now, one more quotation. Look at this. It's in, it's in your study guide. I love this one. If you will only do your part. What's my part? Dwight, this is all you do. Bow at the cross of Calvary. Isn't that beautiful? Bow at the cross of Calvary. You will receive the blessing of God. God loves you. He doesn't wish to draw you nigh to Him to hurt you. Oh, no. But to comfort you, to pour in the oil of rejoicing, to heal. There's that metaphor again. To heal the wounds that sin has made. To bind up where Satan has bruised. Will you bow low at the foot of the cross? I love this. Jesus will place His arms around you and comfort you. Will you do this without further delay? Isn't that beautiful? Just go to the cross. Just look. Just look and live. As this old year wanes and the new year approaches us, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to invite you to join me. Make a little, let's, let's, let's make a little covenant, you and I. I won't check up on you if you promise not to check up on me. But here's what I'd like to invite. This community, the chosen as it were. What would happen if every day of the journey ahead, you start tomorrow, you don't have to wait for the new year, but what would happen if every day we went to the foot of the cross to begin the day? I learned this from my friend who now sleeps in Jesus, Roger Morneau. And I tell you what, it has made a difference in my life. Roger taught me the best way to begin your day, even worship, the best way to begin your worship 
is to go to Calvary, read the story of the cross, read Matthew 27, verse 24 through verse 54. What is that? 30 little verses. You read it every single day of your life. You go to the place where the unleashed power of God can heal you. Go to the foot of the cross. And so since I learned that from Roger Murnau, by the grace of God, I begin every worship right there at the foot of the cross. Every time I stand here, this is a cross inlaid into this wooden platform. Why? Because it's at the foot of the cross that you and I are secure. That's the only place we're healed. So what happened? Come on. So you don't have a Bible? Well, go buy yourself a Bible for Christmas. Don't like the Bible you have? Buy yourself a new translation. It's great to get a new translation now and then. It makes it a little more, yeah, I've got to get into this. Turn those nice, crispy pages. But what do you say? You and I make a covenant. That by the grace of God, we will go to the cross, read Matthew 27, 24 to 54, every day. I don't care what else you do in worship. Start your worship at the cross. Wouldn't that be something? A whole community of the chosen. You know why? You know why that would be important? I'll tell you why. Because the chosen will never end their story in the promised land until first they go to the serpent on the pole. You can't get there without that cross.